Chris Billy Payne keys. Billy Payne, yeah, like I. <laughs> um, there well, are there are no Billies that I could compare it to on keys. <laughs> I was about to say more like, well, no, not like Billy Preston. No, not like Billy Joel. Like, <laughs> is there is there a Billy who's really bad at keyboards? That would be me. I'm sure there there probably is. Mm. Definitely not Billy Payne. Well, it's been a while since we've been in here. Um, yeah, we've had a nice little break. Nice. But uh, today we're back in the studio. Episode 9 of The Backstory, a podcast about songs with killer backstories. I'm Tom Bridwell, and that is Chris Holt. Hello. Today's song, a Beatles track, our first Beatles song. I'm sure there will be more, but this one is like, you know, a great start. Can I can I interrupt for two seconds? Yes. I didn't know that this was episode number nine, but number nine. it's number nine. Number nine. How appropriate that how we appropriate. do. How appropriate that we do a song by this particular author. As I was up there typing the title to this uh, Pro Tools folder, and I typed in episode nine, I thought the exact yeah. same thing. Like I didn't even think about it until you just said that. I was like, "Wow, yep. totally, man." <laughs> Uh, all right, Tomorrow Never Knows. This is a track off of Revolver. Yes. And it's the last track on the record, but oddly enough, the first track they recorded at that session. Yes, this, uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this song, but we might as well start with that. The fact that it was the first song recorded for what ultimately became... I think what is now viewed as the Beatles' greatest album, at least it, it, at least by the rock music press, fifty years later, in hindsight, they they all pretty much agree that Revolver is the Beatles' peak of innovation, and which uh, is funny because at, at the time I feel like, especially this song, there's no way that the critics were taking it seriously. Well, we will, we will talk about that. Because you know what I'm that's, saying? Like yes. it was too experimental. Yes. As and, Paul and, says, they invented everything. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and they, but, but he's, he's right. And they, I mean, the people were not ready for this song. I mean, we were the first to do it. <laughs> first that, to do that. First to do this. First to do that. Well, you know, he wants to cement his legacy. McCartney yeah. was always worried about Lennon getting all the the indie or the 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 edgy cred, you know, like Paul always wanted to make sure everybody knew that he was the one listening to Stockhausen and mm. he was the one, you know, experimenting with tape looms and stuff. Yeah. But we'll talk about all that as we get more into the song. Uh I, I, I think that there, being that this is the backstory, we have to dig into what this is all about and ultimately it's about drugs right acid lsd that is the centerpiece of this story so and a malapropism is that how you pronounce that yeah that's mal where you speak incorrectly yeah, you meant to it, say something but you said something else yeah and and like uh, otiste band in texas <laughs> right and and a lot of times it, it it could be kind of a witty right you know thing uh malapropism propism i'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is but yes that the the whole thing the title of the song came from Ringo uh in a tv interview and sometime in 1964 they were asking him about 
fans trying to cut his hair, like like trying to grab his hair and cut off a lock of it. Like the insanity that was happening during Beatlemania, and yeah. Ringo just rattled off something where he said, "Tomorrow never knows." You know, he, yeah. he said something that they all thought was hilarious, and then when the time came to release the song, Lennon was very concerned about releasing it under its original title, which was The Void. <laughs> uh, and and he thought that there were going to be... that The Beatles were going through a very rough period with the press and with the, uh, the public in general. Like, the, the whole summer of 1966 was a nightmare for them, which we will talk about. But mm-hmm. uh, John decided to give it this kind of cheekier title mm-hmm. uh to disguise what the real subtext of the song was he didn't want it to be banned by the bbc you know he, he did not want people to immediately know that it was a drug song right right yeah. okay so the <clears throat> the beatles anthology uh compilations that came out in the 90s i believe yeah. those uh had so many like uh, unreleased tracks, demos, all kinds of you know unlistened to tracks. Yeah, from it was the like catalog. I, I remember when all that stuff came out. Uh, I bet and, you were like a oh, kid in a candy store. It was store. amazing. You know the the very first uh, anthology, uh, Volume One, was not as exciting for me because a lot of it was the earliest. Mm-hmm stuff they ever did when they that were teenagers the you know way. the pete best there a lot of it had pete best on drums and mm-hmm. and you know there were some great there were some great interesting things there but it was really when anthology 2 came out cuz that was when you started getting the help outtakes the rubber soul outtakes the revolver outtakes and the pepper outtake that was when it was like oh right. man it was yeah. the money yeah. and then of course anthology 3 had you know white album outtakes and abbey road outtakes and it was so that to me that was the the super exciting stuff. So I think we should just start with the the one that they released on Beatles Anthology Two, which is yes. Tomorrow never knows. Now, now let's, let's mark one, take one. Yeah, mark one, take one. Let's talk about this for a minute before we get into the. If you're okay with that, yeah. You want to talk about it first? No, that's fine. So this was the first song. So keep in mind before you hear this track that the Beatles in the fall of 1965 had written and recorded Rubber Soul, which was their pot record. This was their smoking pot record. This was a huge leap forward for them from Help, their previous mm-hmm. record. The, the, all of the songs on Rubber Soul were just leaps and bounds above. I mean, they were just experimenting with new techniques Lennon's lyrics were getting more introspective McCartney was digging more into this kind of soul thing like they they, they were really going forward at a rapid pace and this was all this album Rubber Soul was released in December of 1965 it shows you how fast they were doing these things yeah it's you know cr- just it's think, really about, crazy. think about what you were doing three months ago <laughs> yeah exactly and so in January of 1966 John and Paul find this book called The Psychedelic Experience, and it's a book written by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, uh, and I can't remember the third guy's name. But anyway, Lennon dug into this book having already consumed acid, which we will talk about, and the first song he wrote was this, and it was a one-chord song intended to basically talk about 
the acid experience from his point of view, but it was it was all based on the text of this book that he had purchased. And so in it a- almost seemed like I, I was reading a little bit of it and it said it was he interpreted it as like an instruction manual yeah, on what to do when it was, you take it was, acid. Yes, it was an instruction. Yes. And then Harrison said later that he may have misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. He, the Her- George <laughs> George was like, well, it's really a song about meditation. I'm not sure John fully understood what right. it was. But, but the point is, when they arrived at Abbey Road to start work on their next record, just three months later or four months later after Rubber Soul, this was the first song, and this was what John brought in. And his instruction to Jeff Emmerich and to George Martin was, we want to make, it was, it was we want to break the rules. Each instrument should sound unlike itself. Mm-hmm. Like, they literally were saying, and, and, and McCartney was kind of like, oh, what is going on here? But apparently George Martin and Jeff Emmerich were way on board. So yeah. let's listen to... Take One, which was working under the title of Mark One. Now that sounds like something recorded and then slowed down to like a quarter speed maybe before the drums come in. Yep. Definitely not the same drum beat people are used to. Wow, listen to that delay on the drums. So long. That snare sound, too. The snare sound is... Obviously, the Beatles had never done anything that sounded remotely like this. And the public was not in any way prepared to hear a Beatles song that sounded like this. Totally. So Lennon was ultimately unsatisfied with this version of the song. Yeah. He, he it did not achieve what he had hoped to, to get out of it yeah but uh, yeah I'm gonna fade this out you I mean it's very you can tell that the the main structure of the song is pretty much there but they obviously made some tweaks yeah I mean he's got his lyrics intact and his vocal melody is intact and the whole thing was based around uh, you know it's very Indian inspired it's it's that kind of Indian modal music thing where it's one chord it's a very drony thing and i think mccartney said oh well we should probably do more with this structure and lennon was like no one chord i want it to be this lennon had all kinds of crazy ideas for what he wanted the song to sound like so i was reading this is like the, the let's go over some of the firsts that this song yeah do, do we want to talk about the production of the song yeah, first or do I, we want to talk about what inspired the song you, i mean you, you talk about what inspired the song okay because because I, I think before we get into the whole production and listen to the final version of the song maybe we should talk about 
where all of this began because because you have to talk about LSD. You got to talk about of the drug experience and how it all started. So this has been widely reported over the years by you know I mean it's everybody who knows the Beatles story well knows that the Beatles were introduced to acid. Uh, it was John and George and their wives who went to a dinner party uh, with a dentist that they knew. I guess this guy was a real hipster dentist. <laughs> uh, his name was John Riley, and it was sometime in the spring, I think, of 1965. He invited them over for dinner. And I think Lennon said that Maybe during the course of their interactions, either at that dinner or maybe it was even during conversation they had had in their previous friendship, that they were they they were willing to try LSD, but only if they didn't know they were taking it, because <laughs> because because they thought that that willingly taking it would be too much of a leap. That's you know, insane. They were, they were very they were very scared to do it. So anyway, they have dinner with this dentist, and then. <laughs> The, the dentist gives them some coffee after dinner, uh, after dinner, <laughs> after dinner, <laughs> and then says, and then says, oh, be sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then says, be sure to finish your coffee. And then, you know, informs them, hey, I've just dropped some You've sugar cubes with, with acid into yeah. your coffee. That's and crazy. Then, and then John and George were furious at first. They were like, how could you do this to us, you prick? But uh, and and then they left. They they everything we were taught about acid is you want to be in like a safe space, the right frame of mind, right? And I feel like that is like the bass backwards way to that do acid. To be told that it's been sprung on you, and that's how you enter into a trip is being like, oh fuck! I mean, yeah. that's the and, worst thing. And that's what they did. Like they were so mad that they left. They got into George's car, and the four of them drove to some club in London. And that was when their acid kicked in. They were like in the elevator and they thought the elevator was on fire. And they were like, and, and you know, and they've described this whole thing as being this insane, terrifying, fantastic experience. At some point, they went from being terrified to being what? Enlightened. What? Yeah, well, just, just the enlightening aspect of the LSD experience, yeah. the thing that, that, draws people into it they eventually went back to george's house and like sat in his garden and john had this whole thing about his vision that the house was a submarine which i think subconsciously inspired mccartney to write yellow submarine even though mccartney had not taken acid at that point yeah. there was a there was a rift that actually formed in the beatles when paul refused to take acid for a, for at least a year after all the three other beatles had taken it and there was even a point during the revolver, revolver sessions where they were recording the song "She Said She Said," which was directly about an acid trip that John had taken with Peter Fonda uh, and George in L.A. And McCartney had some thoughts about the production and everything, and John had basically stopped him down and said, "No, I'm not doing any of that." And there was some some kind of subtext there, like you can't even speak about this because you haven't done it yet. Yeah. That's, that's you know, so wild and McCartney to me. I walked just... out of the session, and it's one of the only songs in Beatles history that McCartney didn't play or sing on. It's George playing bass and singing the harmony on the song. Wow. That's on nuts. She Said, She Said. Yeah. yeah. I love that song oh, so dude, much. Oh, dude, it's such a killer track. <clears throat> okay, so they're the acid trip. I mean. Yeah. So anyway, John becomes really. Uh, 
he becomes very uh, enamored with LSD, and they they do it more. They you know, like I said, they go to L.A. and they they have a whole trip in the Hollywood Hills with Peter Fonda and David Crosby, and you know they're getting really into this acid thing. Ringo takes it, and Ringo's like on board, like, hey, sure, sounds like fun, lads. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> Yoko's gone. We can party again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know when John finds this book. This Timothy Leary book, he dives he dives in, and this book, you know, it's based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is kind of a, uh, it's a book about death and rebirth. And Leary kind of takes his own Leary's book is a twist. It's not a twist. It's a it's a connection between the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the acid experience. And it's like you said, a manual for how to navigate the journey of LSD. And John, when writing this song, plucked lines straight from the text. Most notably, the uh, the line, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, which was taken uh, almost verbatim from the text of the book. It says, whenever in doubt, turn off your mind, relax, float downstream. And that's a, a pretty provocative opening line to a song. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll so, say, yeah. So I mean, for, especially <laughs> during that time, but today for sure. But back then, it's just like, yeah. So they went into the recording of the song uh, with a lot of enthusiasm. Even though I think McCartney had some hesitation about the structure of it. Um, one thing that's that's no, and you you were saying we should talk about the the firsts in this song. It's such a radical departure from anything they ever did. The fact that it's, uh, you know, they're, they're, they go in, they went into the recording of this song, embracing the studio without any consideration of how to do this live, and and really, Revolver was the first album they made where they were just like, "Fuck it, we're we're not even going to try to play this stuff live." I don't think any songs from Revolver ever got played live. What what on Revolver ever got played live? It would have been impossible to play this song live because Absolutely. these loops, yeah. they, even when they were recording them. They were playing them live, so wherever that was, wherever the loop was on that particular take is what it sounded like on that take. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So it was a, yes, it was literally it was, a live So mix. like the take two and take three and take four, would th- th- wherever those loops were on in their playing were different each time, so yeah. that would have made it impossible. Yeah, they're to try literally to feeding, it. they were feeding the loops through. And, and so there were so many, uh, you know, we're talking about tape loops. This was where Paul McCartney really contributed to the song. So this is one of the first. They made a tape loop, and that's when you take a reel-to-reel tape. Let's say you take a six-foot piece, you cut it, and you tape it together to where it makes this circle, and you just basically run it through the tape machine, and it just keeps repeating over and over again. Yeah. And so when it gets back to the beginning, it starts over. Have you seen the, the little... I, th- I think it's in the Beatles anthology where they show... Some they just kind of have little snippets of examples of the loops. Well, no, I've got them pulled up right here. Yeah. This is let's listen to them real quick. It's supposed to be Paul laughing. Yes, that's, it's it's McCartney. A lot of this stuff was done by Paul. And yeah, that, yeah, it's a, that's him laughing apparently. And then this is it sped up. Sounds like seagulls. Yeah. So that's one of them. So I'm wondering if those the little gaps are the part where it stops and then the tape is there and then it you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's so many little bits you recognize and go, oh yeah, that's the little. Yeah. One thing I love I is how there's. I think those little a... gaps are where it gets to the end of the tape, and then the, there's the tape, it's yeah. the, the adhesive tape, and it's like that little one second gap where there's no audio on either side of the tape. I love that one right there. The orchestra thing. That little B flat chord that yeah, happens yeah. right there—that's one of my favorite things. And I think there's a there, some of this was created with a mellotron too. Like yeah. one of them is an orchestral sample, mm -hmm. but I think there are a couple of them that are mellotrons. <laughs> that's so cool. It's awesome. One of my favorite things. Can I go to the piano for a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things, and even though there's one chord in the song, you've got a polychord that kind of happens. Because of a tape loop, it creates a B flat over C chord, which is this. And that's and that enhances the melody because the whole song is in the, the mode of C mixolydian. So uh, John's melody is It's all just C major triad, but then he goes to the flat seven. And they found a way, and this had to be George Martin's doing, how they managed to get that chord over the top, right at the point where John hits the flat seven in the melody. Right. It's brilliant, and that, and it, it totally, it keeps the song from ever being one static chord the whole time. There's actually some harmony there. That's, it, it has to be intentional. If it's not intentional, yeah, no, the that's cosmic. <clears throat> It's funny that that those those block chords you just played reminded me. There's some Steely Dance song that has an oh, intro. Oh, there's a million Steely, yeah, Steely that Dance that, songs. Yeah, that chord in it. You're probably but, thinking of Doctor Wu. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it has. It's actually a whole step higher. It's. Uh, oh no! It played those. I was like, oh man, that yeah. sounds very Danian, yeah, if you will. Absolutely, that's one uh, of my favorite things. Is just when you have a, a chord. You know, the 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 right hand chord is different from the left hand bass note. You know. That's pretty badass, actually. So those loops, that was that was one of the firsts. Then also, yeah, well, no, that I thought ever, was really cool. Nobody had ever done anything like that. No, no I this, mean, the, 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 the ground they were breaking with this song. Uh, and so many people would go on to do that. Uh, absolutely. Namely, Pink Floyd. And then, you know, well, this, this, this just set the, the template the whole, for so like, much experimental. Where would hip hop be without Tomorrow Never absolutely. Knows? Listen, this it is basically be... the first example of sampling ever in pop music. Yeah. You know, that's and the other thing is that I don't know what the term is. It's like uh, music critique or critique. What's the uh, music concrete? Concrete. Or, yeah, yes. Yeah. Where you basically use sounds and yes. things it's, that aren't instruments that become musical exactly and this was a lot of this was mccartney's influence because he was listening to a lot of stockhausen yep. who was a, a very experimental composer and and so this is this is where paul's contribution really came in you know this is john's song and john had all these ambitious ideas of what he wanted to do with it and a lot of john's crazy ideas really weren't practical right like he came in with the suggestion he was like he wanted it to sound like a thousand tibetan monks chanting with his vocal sounding like the Dalai Lama singing from a hilltop from a mountaintop you know? I think maybe he was still on acid when he uh, came absolutely up that. and and he was just gobbling it up he admitted that at the time he was just gobbling it up like candy yeah you know? that's hilarious and uh so Jeff Emmerich had the 
the solution to run his vocal through a Leslie speaker, which was something, you know, uh, Emmerich had to create, a, he had to make like a connector so that they could break it in and actually get the, you know, nobody yeah. had run a vocal through a Leslie at that point. Yeah. And which would also become common practice later. Yes. But John's question at that point was, well, if that's the effect you're looking for, couldn't you just hang me upside down from the spiel, uh, from the ceiling and spin me around the microphone? <laughs> like literally, that was what he wanted them to do. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not. There's a there's like a this there's a documentary about the making of uh, Hoist in 1994, that fish fish record, and there's a there's footage in that documentary of them uh, pushing Mike's bass cabinet, which was on casters they would push it across the room while he was playing through it. Two guys, I think it was Fish and Trey, they were like pushing it to each other and then they would it would roll 15 feet across the floor and then Trey would push it back. So while, they were just trying to create some sort of... Yes, the mic's in the center of the room and they were sending the bass cabinet while he's playing through it. They're pushing it like a... like throwing it like How a have football. I never seen that footage? It's That's really insane. badass. And so I, what it, song was it on? I don't know. I have no idea. We, we, we'll find I, it. You got to uh, see yeah, it. It's I'll really have to awesome. Dig that up because I I had no idea that existed. But I can only imagine that that's like kind of in the same vein of what they were trying to do. Yes, I, I, they were just movement. John, John wanted to try anything, yeah. and and you know, Paul was kind of. I mean, stereo recording was kind of new at this time. Absolutely. So, like you, you're not. You have two speakers now that you can send sound out of instead of just. I, I could be wrong, but I think Revolver was the first Beatles album to be issued in stereo. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there is a mono mix of, of Revolver, and the mono mix is actually, I think, better. The bass is so much fatter on the mono version. Wow, I'm gonna have to look at listen to that. Cause yeah. Anyway, stereo. What a concept. Yeah. So, so you know, John, his his Leslie vocal is in the song, but it comes in uh, after the guitar solo, after the backwards guitar solo. There's just so much going on in here. This is uh, since since I mentioned the backwards guitar solo, we should talk about that. It's the first time anybody had ever done that in pop music, and or, or in any music, in any recorded music. It's the first time there is a backward version of a forward recording. What George did was he just played a guitar solo. And then they cut the tape and reversed it. So what you hear there is this wild, weird sound of of him playing a guitar solo, and but you're hearing it in reverse. Mm-hmm. Nobody had ever done that before. And this was the first time it was ever done, but actually they did the same thing with John's vocal on the track Rain, and Rain was the first one released because it was the B-side of Paperback Writer. So even though people would hear Rain first... Because Tomorrow Never Knows wouldn't come out on the album until maybe three months later. It was Tomorrow Never Knows was was the track that really broke yeah. all of that ground. <clears throat> and then they became obsessed with it. You know, they wanted to use the backward stuff all the time. They had they kind of wanted to overuse it. And I think George Martin had to eventually be like, "All right, lads, let's not let's use it sparingly." So you mentioned something about '65 being like a really rough year. For the Beatles, well, sixty six like, because, well, because Beatlemania had happened sixty four. Their last live show was in sixty five at Shea, right? No, no, they they continued to tour into nineteen sixty six. Their final live show was at Candlestick Park okay. in nineteen sixty six. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, maybe that's what I meant. I just, yeah, 
I just malappropriated it. <laughs> I just, Shea Stadium was kind of the peak of Beatlemania as far as their concert touring. There was nowhere to go but down from there. Yeah. Um, they, they were, were sick of it. I mean, they were absolutely sick of I mean, it. They were sick they of Beatlemania. Hear anything. They, yeah, they just they felt like puppets. I guess I, yeah. they just hated the concert experience. So what was happening was at the beginning of 1966, they were transitioning away from wanting to be a live band and wanting to be mop top Beatles, and they wanted to be serious artists. And this is when you know because Acid was having a huge influence. They'd already spent. The entire year of 1965 stoned out of their minds. I mean, they were they were really digging deeper on what they could. This was this was when the drugs were really having a positive influence on uh, on the musicians. The Beatles were, you know, they they were really benefiting from their experimentation at this point. And uh, so so in 1966, they didn't. Anytime they had a tour obligation, they were miserable. They were like, oh, God, now we have to go travel and deal with Beatlemania. And the things they were expected to do were, were just unbelievable. Like they were having to meet with all these foreign leaders and they were having to go see sick children. They were just, there were so many things that they were obligated to do around. I mean, it was just 24 7, nonstop. Right. The only time. They had any sort of sanctuary was when they were in the studio creating. So they were putting all of their energy into making music. That and they they were no longer concerned about hey let's make hits. They were like we've done this. We 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 have we have literally owned the planet for the past two and a half to three years. Because keep in mind, Beatlemania started in England in 1963 before it exploded in America in 1964. Like, they had already... I mean, since since 1963, they had been in a different universe. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean... So by this point... Of by, course the studio would be, like, yeah, just th this playground and sanctuary of... yeah. And they no, they no longer had to prove themselves mm -hmm. uh, to the record label. They basically could... They were allowed to spend as much time as they wanted on a, on a project... So what happened was they spent the most time they'd ever spent on a record, making Revolver. They started with Tomorrow Never Knows in April, but then they kept recording all the way through, I think, the end of June. And then they had to go do some touring obligations. Right. And that was when things, that was when shit really hit the fan. Right. It was when Revolver was being mixed and prepped for release. Yeah. Uh, the paperback writer single was huge. It was another massive hit for them. And another innovative track, you know. I mean, when when the public heard Paperback Writer, it, it was in Rain. I mean, yeah. Rain, the B side is. I mean, that's uh, those two songs were were extremely well received because they were just the most innovative tracks the Beatles had ever recorded to yeah. date. But there was a lot of backlash brewing. <laughs> yeah, because not only were people getting a little bit sick of Beatlemania as a thing, but uh, the Beatles were, you know, they, this is when they did uh, their tour of Japan and they were starting to piss people off and they went to Manila and they snubbed the prime minister there because they just didn't, I mean, it, it wasn't that they 
intentionally snubbed. It was Marcos, you know, and yeah. they were like, and in in hindsight, it was kind of like, yeah, fuck you, Marcos. We're, yeah, they're they're proud of the fact that they snubbed Marcos, but it was really just that they were like, no, this is our day off. We're not coming to your luncheon. You know, it was it was really just like, totally. no, we're staying in bed today because we've been on for the last eighteen days. You know. The, so anyway, they got chased out of Manila. They nearly got killed. Like people were rioting, trying to break into their cars and kill them. And like they they had to be rushed onto a plane, you know. And they and they they thought they were going to die. That's <laughs> and George insane. Harrison kind of like took his coat off and said, "I'm not a Beatle anymore." As soon as you know, as soon as the plane left. That's uh, nuts. Man. But while all of that was brewing, you know, the the album Revolver is about to be released. But then this interview that John did. Uh, with this British journalist named Maureen Cleave uh, was released. And it's this whole ranty interview that John did. And John was always kind of mouthing off and saying whatever he thought. Uh, but there was one particular quote that got taken somewhat out of context uh, with the whole statement he was making about the Beatles' popularity. <laughs> and it got blown up by the American press. We're more popular than Jesus. <laughs> insane yeah and he was of course referring to how british kids no longer cared about religion he was like he was just saying christianity has a shelf life it's going to it's not going to last and he was kind of predicting what was going to happen with organized religion as time went on you know that there was going to be fanaticism on one side and complete rejection on the other side and and he was just saying we matter more to kids than Jesus does more than religion does now. Imagine what it's going to be like in the future. And of course, the American press took this and blew it up. And then suddenly you had this massive backlash of the Beatles in the American Bible Belt, people burning records. And it was the stupidest thing. But all of this was happening in the summer of 1966, right as the Beatles were on an American concert tour. They came to America right in, in the shitstorm to end all shitstorms for them. Mm -hmm. And while all of this is happening, their masterpiece, Revolver, is released. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. The song, Tomorrow Never Knows, in particular, was uh, placed at the very end of the record. Uh, and there are, there are different schools of thought on why that was. I think a lot of people believe that it was placed there to kind of represent the summit of the mountain that you're climbing with. The, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you look at the artistic statement of Revolver and it's like, tomorrow never knows. That's, that's it. That's mm -hmm. the peak. Yep. It's the final track. But also, as evidenced by the title being kind of this cheeky malapropism, I think that <laughs> there was a certain intent of putting it at the end this could be the last record. <laughs> kind of just like, like who knows if like, there will like, be Beatles tomorrow. Who knows if the public is going to? But but the Beatles themselves were were absolutely a hundred percent into it. There's there's a story. I've I've got this book called Revolver, and I can't remember. It, it's written by a guy named Robert Rodriguez, and I can't remember what the subtitle of the book is. It's like Revolver, the Beatles masterpiece. In, I can't remember what it's called. It's a killer book, and it's all about just this one record. It's a complete, very, very deep dive analysis into Revolver and the making of it. And it tells a story about how McCartney was at a party in London 
with a bunch of hipsters and upper crust people and you know like because that was the crowd that they were really hanging with they were trying to they were hanging with the people that were pushing the envelope but apparently he had an an acetate you know of tomorrow never knows the final mix of the song and he was like you guys want to hear what we've just done oh yeah paul come on and he put it on and there were some women there who kind of started laughing and were like, this is a joke, right? This is a joke. Oh, my God. You know, like... Yeah. And he was just like... And he was furious. He was just like, just you wait. Yeah. Like, he was just like, fuck you. <laughs> you don't think they would have put that song on the end as kind of like a... People... They didn't think this, but maybe they thought people are going to want to hear this last. Like, this one is going to be... Don't make people skip this song on the record. Like... Don't yeah, yeah. Like, I think let's the, put this at the, the end I so think that the intent it's of the, the Beatles, last thing they hear, yes. and they don't have to skip over this experiment. Yes, I every time the, they want to get to. I think the intent of the Beatles and George Martin was. I think that was absolutely their intent. Yeah. It was this, this. It was the, the thought of this is the peak. You know what yeah. I mean? It's the summit of the mountain, uh, and yeah, it's it's the it is the final statement. Even though it was ironically the first thing they did for the yeah. record, um, I think that the record label probably was like, "Yeah, put it at the end." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, just EMI probably wanted them to cut it from the record, right. but they stood their ground and said, "No, this is yeah, that's amazing. This is it." That's so awesome. it was, you know. So when it came time for release, when the album came out. Um, there were a lot of mixed reviews about it. There were there there were some people who saw it for for the brilliant innovation that it was, and there were other people who didn't. There's there's one thing I read about it that uh, there was a journalist, somebody that I think was a friend of Lennon's, a guy named Tony Hall, who was given an early copy of the song to listen to uh, as early as May of 1966. Keep in mind the album didn't come out till August. But in May, which was only weeks after it had been recorded, the final version of the song, he heard it and gave a preview review of it in the magazine that he wrote for. I can't remember the name of the magazine, but NME. <laughs> no, but it was it was some notable British yeah. magazine, and he said, and it was the the title of the song was "The Void" at the time. Yeah, and he said. The Void is the most revolutionary track ever made by a pop group. The Beatles are so far ahead. They are as revolutionary to pop music as Ornette Coleman was to jazz a decade ago. And and he made this statement three months before the record came out. And this was a pretty spot-on analysis of it. That's awesome. Which, which was not the common thinking uh when people heard it for the first time and and so i i would argue that he is the first guy to ever take that stance and to really proclaim the beatles as uh the innovators they really were for for pop music you want to listen to the actual track yes let's listen to it <laughs> it's so crazy I mean, you've got so many cool things going on here. That's the, you know, the, I love the, the tambourine. tambourine. Yeah, yeah, you have a tambourine, but you also have an Indian tambura and a sitar droning, with bass playing one note the entire time. Like, that drum beat. 
That is so not a normal drum beat. And it's very different from the one that's on the first take, you know, which was had that. So killer. So the uh, vocal track here for the first part of the song is uh, the ADT automatic double tracking yep. that Ken Townsend de uh, developed at Abbey Road. But after the backwards guitar solo, you'll hear John come in with the Leslie vocal. So it's in the back half of the song where the Leslie effect comes in. Here's George's backward guitar solo. There's the Leslie. You get a little feedback in the right speaker there. Did you hear that? So Klaus Vormann is uh, was a bass is a bass player. He was the Beatles' friend from Germany. He did the album art, and he and he based his uh, album art that he created that whole collage on listening to this song. And he was really worried about it. He, he said that he found the song rather frightening and he questioned whether or not it would, you know, terrify the Beatles fan base and whether or not it would turn off and create uh, a major backlash for the Beatles. Yeah, I gotta say, like, that song is... <clears throat> I, I, I can't... It's hard for me to put myself in the position of somebody listening in 66, having not heard all of the stuff that I grew up on. But, like, I don't understand how people could not have thought that was amazing the first time. Well, it depends on what kind of mindset you have. You know, George, George Harrison said, you know, you can't listen to this if you don't have open ears, you know? I don't know. There's something, it it's, makes you feel. It is most definitely evoking the drug experience. And and I think that with the counterculture. It's easy to grab onto. If you were into the idea of mind expansion at the time. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that you had to take drugs, but I think it was the people who were open to new things. It was, it was not the conservative you know, it was not yeah. the button-down society people. It was it was the counterculture. It was the people who were really emerging into this new landscape. Who were like, "Wow, this <laughs> is," and 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 that's what that's what wound up happening. It was it created a divide between the people who loved the early. I can't tell you how many times being a Beatles enthusiast over the years that I played in Beatles-related bands, where I met people who were like, "Well, I don't really like when they got weird." I just like She Loves You, and I like the early stuff. A lot of people who, who feel that way about the Beatles. And I I love the Beatles. These people are voters. I celebrate These their... morons. <laughs> I celebrate the Beatles' entire catalog. But, you know, I don't sit around listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand, whereas I, no, I, I, I do sit around listening to uh, She Said, She Said, and I do sit around listening to Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, I, I really dig the back half of their catalog more than the front half. And that's 
to that's just the person that I am, as opposed, you know. But everybody's different. Yeah. But, did you you watched Mad Men, right? Yeah, of course. You remember the scene in Mad Men where Don Draper's wife brings him the copy of Revolver because he's trying to figure out what's going on with the kids, yeah. and she's like, "Start with this one," and she tells him to listen to Tomorrow Never Knows. He puts it on. And he listens to it for a few seconds, and then he turns it off. Yeah. No, and he's that, like, and that's it right there. It's like, I don't get this at all. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> and then, of course, they play the whole song over the over the closing credits. You know? Yeah. That, uh, that's, that's wild. And that, I, cost, I don't under- and that cost them so much money to secure the rights to use that song. <laughs> it cost them like 300 grand or Believe something. Believe me, they had it. Yeah. That, that show was... Absolutely. Dominating at the time, so lots of people thought John Lennon had gone completely off his rocker. Uh, You think Ray Davies? I see this on your notes here. Ray Davies's diss says he quote, "I quote, they must have had George Martin tied to a totem pole." So I recently read this Ray Davies thing, um, and I didn't even know it existed. But uh, a guy, a guy that I'm friends with, posted it online, and it was like, "Can you believe that Ray Davies wrote this about the Beatles?" And it was a full on review that Ray Davies had written of Revolver in August 1966 for NME or something like that. And and he went track by track talking about the record. And he was nice about some of it, but Ray was very competitive with the Beatles and he was very bitter and he did not want to praise them. You know, and he and he, you know, I mean like he totally slammed Yellow Submarine. He was like this is garbage. And but but he said specifically about tomorrow never knows he goes well clearly they had george martin tied to a totem pole I, I, they, <laughs> he may have actually thought that i yeah. mean he, he i don't you know well, i ray get was, not giving them any praise but ray it, was it, a very mercurial dude you know yeah. he did not you know and the kinks were having their own issues and ray was very bitter about that you know the kinks were basically banned in america at that point and yeah where where the beatles were conquering the world the kinks were being met with so much resistance that's insane that, it is that he insane. would say that about about that yeah. song well, uh, there's no way he possibly still thinks that it's hard to say because ray's a cranky old man he might still have some bitterness about it but i'm sure he recognizes i'm sure he recognizes how brilliant the beatles were but he probably would be the first to say well i'm better than them Ray, nobody proclaims Ray Davies' genius more than Ray Davies. Wow. So just just pointing out that that the press was not very kind about a lot of this stuff. Uh, Crawdaddy <laughs> magazine <laughs> referred to Tomorrow Never Knows and said, a good artist doesn't publish their first draft. Mm-hmm. And, and where's then, Crawdaddy now? Yeah, I'd love, to, <laughs> I'd love to see what that writer has to say about that now. Of course, he's probably dead. Yeah, no doubt. But, Man, that but is yeah, but, but a lot of a lot of the music writers didn't uh, they didn't get it. They didn't uh, appreciate what it was, even though now it has come to be considered the most important song in the history of, of psychedelic music. It basically set the blueprint. Um, and even though it might not be the first psychedelic song ever, it's most definitely the one that was most prominently brought to the public consciousness. It was also, I mean, as an engineer, <laughs> uh, this song is the beginning of taking the studio to ne- the next level of creativity. Well, the Beatles had hinted at it before. Like, they were really starting to get their 
like on on Rubber Soul, you know, George brought in the sitar, and that mm-hmm. was something new. You know, I mean, they were they were starting to kind of experiment with techniques, but it wasn't until this song where they just where it all came together, where th- this was the moment. And a lot of people say, "Oh, well, Sergeant Pepper." You know, people assume that Sergeant Pepper is the Beatles' acid record, but really. And it was, but this was the one. Revolver yeah. was the real acid record, and Pepper was was later because after Revolver, this you know Revolver was released at the beginning of August 1966. Well, at the end of August, they played their final concert ever at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and then, for all intents and purposes, the Beatles broke up. George kind of said, "I'm done here," and. John went off to Almeria, Spain to film a movie called How I Won the War. And for like three months, the Beatles didn't do anything. And it was kind of, they told Brian Epstein, they said, we're done. We're not touring anymore. We'll probably make more records because we're really into that. But we're not, and and Brian Epstein, of course, slid into a horrible depression at that point because he no longer had anything to do. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he, his whole job was, organizing their touring and organizing their public appearances and when they said we're not going to do that anymore and the, all four of them stood their ground on that epstein was he, he was up the creek man and he was dead a, a year later you know it was a really sad thing for That's him bummer but the beatles you know uh you know then the next step was sergeant pepper and and the acid experience uh, ran its course for them. Uh, within a year later, you know, Harrison kind of famously went to San Francisco to see what the whole hate Ashbury scene was about while they were finishing Pepper, and and he was like, "Wow, it wasn't anything like I thought it was going to be. It was just a bunch of dirty hippies, yeah, <laughs> and they were all you know." fucked up and then you know he like that was where he talks about taking the acid and looking at it under a microscope and then he was like i'm never putting that in my brain again yeah and so so you know they they had this window of opportunity with the with the drugs before it started when to it was really toll. just experimenting right. and not abusing and that's kind of and the lennon thing. and I lennon mean, took it too far if you look at pictures of lennon taken in 1966 and then compare them with pictures of Lennon taken six months later when they were doing the Pepper artwork, he looks like he's aged 10 years. Uh-huh. He looks he goes from looking like this vibrant young man to looking like this grandfather. And he's still a young dude, but like it's a crazy transformation. And this is really only in the course of about six months. Yeah. Compare the look, compare his look on the artwork of Revolver to the artwork of Pepper, and it's like what has gone on? And, and it's not—it's more than just long hair and circular glasses. Well, and and like there was there was a there was a lot of uh, expansion of his mind, and, uh-huh. but but there was abuse too. Man, yeah. he was he was doing way too much acid, and he also lost something like forty pounds because he had gained a bunch of weight during the rubber sole. He called it his fat Elvis period. And, you know, he'd gained some weight and someone in the press had called him the fat beetle. And then he'd like, and of course that just completely sent him over the edge. So then he just stopped eating altogether <laughs> drugs and no food. And, and, you know, and then for the rest of his life, he was just gaunt, mm-hmm. super skinny. That's wild. It is. It's crazy. It's a, uh... 
It's a fascinating. I mean, the Beatles story is so fascinating on so many levels, and and there can never be another. I mean, you can talk about bands that out. You know, there's always oh, they're the next Beatles, or oh, they're more popular than the Beatles, or whatever. But there will never be another pop culture story. I like to have the fact that kind that of impact. I, I I don't know. I can't think of another band that hasn't had that's had this kind of documentation yeah. of their life. So many books, an ungodly amount of pictures in an age where there wasn't iPhones and digital pictures. Like right. the, the amount of pictures of the band is shocking. Yeah. Um, but then just the di- like the fact that they basically every minute of the day is logged because they were so huge that yeah. there was just somebody writing it all down, taking pictures of everything. And Mark Lewison's recording sessions book is just a, that's yes, a Bible that, that I, I mean, it's insane. We, you, you and I have both spent so many totally. hours just, just, I, I will literally just open it to a page and read, Oh, May 24th, 46 tracks of sexy Sadie. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're just, I, I love it. I, I think it's awesome that they, they're, it's one cool thing about the band is just how well the, documented the story goes. So my final thought just on, Abbey Road as a studio and what the Beatles were able to do, particularly with this album and Sgt. Pepper uh, and, and Magical Mystery Tour, which were the, their most experimental records. Um, Abbey Road was really not up to speed as far as like, I mean, they didn't even get 16 track recording capability and direct in, uh, DI options until when they were making Abbey Road. Like, so when they made these records... The, it was EMI, yeah, right? EMI, it wasn't even yes. called Abbey yeah, Road. Yeah, so it was just called EMI Studios right. at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they did not have cutting-edge technology. Like, they, uh, George Martin, was, it was like pulling teeth for him to get new tape machines and to get whatever the, whatever the current state-of-the-art options were. And it was really George... Uh, Norman Smith, who engineered the early records, and then Jeff Emmerich, uh, and then some of the other guys, uh, Ken Scott, Chris Thomas, all, all the engineers, most notably Jeff Emmerich, though, who really made that stuff happen, who who made the sounds. I mean, the, the sound of the bass on Revolver mm-hmm. and uh, the sound of Ringo's drums and all the innovations that they were able to make, they did that with such limited four-track technology. Mm-hmm. That's pretty mind-blowing because these days i mean if you and i wanted to sit here and make a a record and do all this crazy stuff we could do it with a hundred tracks of pro tools yeah and we could sit there and edit stuff in in seconds whereas they were having to cut up tape loops and they were having to manually feed them and they were all having to stand around the desk pushing faders at different times to get what was absolutely a live mix of a song it's crazy very crazy what they were able to do with limited resources at that time period. Praise the Beatles. The end. All right, dude. Well, this is the end of number nine. Number nine. Um, so we're almost to our 10th one. And, uh, you know, it's got to be special, right? Shouldn't your 10th episode be special? I guess. Let's do a Spo song. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. See you next time, dude.